Father, we praise you. We are gathered here together this morning because we love you. And we are your church, your body, and we love each other. And so we invite you to come and speak to us through your word, to encourage us, challenge us, and increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10, page 656 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. We're kind of camping out at this chapter, though, chapter 11, spending a little more time in it because the whole chapter is all about faith, several different examples of faith, and so we're wanting to see what we can uh, learn about faith, and today we're seeing this section here, faith follows God's guidance. Columbus. Now there's a guy, supposedly a leader, when he got here, didn't know where he was, And when he left, didn't know where he had been. Not much of a leader. I'm a Leif Erikson fan. Okay? Vikings. Right? Adam Thielen. Got it? Okay. Vikings. All right. But uh, leaders, what makes a good leader? Well, listen, have you ever thought of taking a class in followership? It's a good idea by the way. Joseph Stoll, in his book, Following Christ, he makes this point. He says this, followers would be, followership would be drudgery and dull if it were nothing but an obligation to fulfill or a list of rules to keep. We don't find joy and fulfillment in a good marriage because of the institution of marriage, the laws that govern it, or the tax breaks for filing jointly. What would motivate me to change diapers, pick up my clothes, endure crowded aisles in the grocery store, or be faithful? It is relationship. Doing these things for Marty, that's his wife, is what gives meaning to the menial tasks of marriage. If Christianity is dull and boring, if it is a burden and not a blessing, then most likely we are involved in a project, not a person, a system, not a savior, rules rather than a relationship. But Christianity is a relationship. But it is a relationship, it's a special relationship, where Jesus is Lord. He is the leader, not us. And he calls us to follow him. That's how he called absolutely every single person. Search the scriptures. He said, follow me. So, how do you know if you're a follower of Jesus? Well, one thing you could check is, are you following him? Jesus is Lord, and he has a plan for your life. Are you following him? 
So many people have so many struggles in life, and often the root cause of the struggles is rebellion. We want to be the leader. Counterculture Christians, however, follow Jesus no matter what the world thinks. Now, Abraham was one of the original followers of God. Let's look at our passage. Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. Maybe a little like Columbus. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham had faith, and faith follows God's guidance. We start out here, and we see... Whoops, now I'm going wrong too fast. That faith trusts in God's guidance. We see this in verse 8. Faith trusts in God's guidance. Uh, That's where Abraham, he was led by God. He trusted his guidance, but he surrendered to God's guidance. Absolute surrender to his plan is necessary. Um, He probably won't even lead you unless you're willing to. To follow, okay. Uh, I think of our life. Uh, it has been an incredible experience, uh, especially with our kids who have been really a part of all of this. Uh, I remember when we were in Atlanta. Uh, Elizabeth had begun to sense uh, that perhaps I was a, I was a, a, an assistant pastor at a church, and she began to sense that perhaps we should look into uh, me being a a senior pastor, and, and she saw this opening in Colorado, and I was like, no, I love my job here and that kind of thing. And, and so, uh, so then Daniel, I think he was like six years old, five or six, he comes in and wakes me up one morning, and he didn't know anything about all this, wakes me up, and he never did that, by the way. He would never come in and wake me up. He came in, wake me, woke me up, he had a dream. He says, Dad, I want to move to Minnesota and get snowboard I looked at you know he the only winter he had ever known was because we had taken him to Minnesota that's where my family is and everything and and uh and so I thought snowboards that's Colorado okay I'll think about it God okay so that was that was really you know a help I did talk to my pastor and found it and he was really he really felt like this was God too so we got to encouragement and we uh, that's what led us to Colorado. Well, then I, w- I was really sensing that I wanted to be a professor at a, at a Bible college and that God was calling me in that direction. And, and, and then we were looking at this position in New York and all of a sudden, and once again, Isaac, who didn't know anything about this, he has this dream about New York, that we all moved to New York. Okay, And I was like, you can't make this up, you know. Okay, okay, kids. Uh, so, so you know, I did. I took the position, and I was a professor in New York for five years, and and uh, 
thoroughly enjoyed that. And then, as I shared before, I think, uh, where Elizabeth began, uh, God put Minnesota on her heart, okay, which was a miracle, being from Florida. And, and so, uh, but then that, that brought us here, okay? And this is, through all of that, I ended up having my dream job, okay? I mean, y'all are absolutely wonderful. I still have that southern part of me. Y'all are absolutely wonderful. And I get to be a pastor and a professor, okay, because I'm teaching at Northwestern. And so I really, because I really just didn't feel right in one or the other, and I get to do both. And it's, now it wasn't easy. It's not that when we are led by God, there's no bumps and struggles and, and difficulties, but being led by God is actually kind of fun, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so here, here we are. Well, at any rate, Abraham, same thing. He's in Ur, you know, probably, you know, enjoys it down there. It's pretty mild weather and so forth and, and uh, whatever. I'm just kidding. But he, he senses to be, he's led by God and to, to move and he moves. Uh, but I want to say this, in light of this, some lessons that we can learn. First of all, God leads us away from sin. Abraham left his life of paganism in Ur. Ur was one of those capitals with massive idolatry going on and so forth. And, and so I think one of the things we see here, a principle, is that God will not lead us into new ways of living until he leads us out of the old ways. Of living, and he's calling us to leave the dark, to leave the sinful path, the way of the world, worldliness, and he's calling us to follow him. And that's what he did with Abraham. So he he woke him up, so to speak, and he began that journey. And then God leads one step at a time, expecting a faithful response. See, Abraham first with his dad actually went up to Haran. Okay, and then before he then eventually made it down to what we call Israel now. Uh, and that's kind of a, an interesting journey in and of itself. Just a little sidelight. In, uh, in archaeology, they have discovered that uh, the movements, uh, the migration patterns of people, uh, there was this time period where there was this prevalent migration from the south and uh, east of the ancient Near East up to the northwest, okay? But most of the time, right around 2000 uh, B.C., okay? Whereas before that and after that, it was all northwest down to southeast, okay? And so you're thinking, well, you're, you're boring me, Larry, okay? Well, well, what's fascinating is, is that's exactly when Abraham came on the scene. So it, it, it's at least reflecting that Moses got it right when he spoke of this. So, you know, just another little archaeological tidbit there for you. But, but the point is, we also need to recognize here, we're, we're thinking, oh, okay, he, he got a little calling, let's go, you know, up to Haran and down to Palestine. Sounds fun, right? It wasn't that easy, okay, back then. Let me read something from uh, Albert Moeller's commentary on this. And uh, 
He says, Abraham's faith is seen in the fact that he left his home country of Haran in Mesopotamia in obedience to God, even though at the time he had no idea exactly where he was going. Of course, this may not strike us as a remarkable act of faith, but that simply proves how unfamiliar we are with the culture of the ancient Near East. The Mesopotamian world could be quite dangerous. Physical protection was often the result of being closely knit to one's kin and community. Travel was particularly hazardous since it separated a person from his place of protection and exposed him to marauders and thieves. In this light, the fact that Abraham left Haran and traveled to a land that he did not know is indeed a remarkable act of trust in God. And so though it wasn't easy, he heard God and he pursued the voice of the Lord. So God leads us one step at a time expecting a faithful response. Now with that, I would say uh, we must die to self. If we want to be led by God, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he said when Christ bids a man to come, he bids him to die. And that is true, actually. Uh, Luke 9.23, Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That means die to self and follow me. So that's how Jesus presented the gospel, by the way. Um, and, and so we must die to ourselves. Now, once we die to our own selfishness, God changes our desires to conform to his desires. It's actually a, an incredible thing that takes place. I want to read what, uh, how John MacArthur explains this okay, in his commentary. This is pretty neat. Okay? He starts out, he says this, It is the desire for sin that is the root of worldliness and from which the believer is to be separated. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, 1 John 2.15. The root meaning of holiness is separation, being set apart for God. Okay, now watch this. One of the surest marks of the demise of worldliness is a change in desires, in loves. As we grow in Christ and in love for him, our love for the things of the world diminishes. They will simply lose their attraction. We will not want to do them like we used to. The pilgrimage of faith begins by separating ourselves from the world. And as we concentrate on Jesus and fellowship with him, soon we do not care about the things we once loved so much. When we slip and engage in them, we hate what we do in the weakness of the flesh. Then he says this, watch this. Paradoxical as it may seem at first, the highest mark of spiritual maturity is being able to do what we want to do. Now, you got to follow what he's saying here, okay? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. Moses did not forsake Egypt because he had to or because he felt obligated to, but because he wanted to. Egypt had lost its attraction. It could not compare with what Christ offered. 
In this regard, the spiritually mature Christian is like the worldly person. He does what he wants to do. The great difference is that the mature Christian wants what God wants. And so the more we love Jesus, the more we want what he wants, our desires even begin to change. It's a process called sanctification. But our desires begin to change, and we want what God wants. And so when he leads us, it's like, good idea, God. Okay? He always leads us away from sin and then expects one step at a time uh, faithful responses. Uh, we must follow each step, though. Okay? Psalm 119, 105, it's a great passage. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, Now, you got to get the picture. Back then, they didn't have these big light beams that they could shine miles away or whatever, right? They didn't even have flashlights. Can you believe it? They, they had these little, like, lantern kind of a things that would just show where you're next step was supposed to be. <laughs> you go, okay, there we go. And you, so one step at a time is how, and he's, and he's likening that to the word. God's word leads us one step at a time. And so as we are following him, we take the steps he's leading us to. Now, when you don't walk in what you already know, you're walking in darkness, you're following him, it looks like it's going that way, and you go this way, you step in the dark, right? You're stepping in the darkness. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. First John 1, 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him, by the way, because we're following him, remember, he's the leader, and we're not. Okay, so we're having fellowship with him, following him, that relationship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. Okay, uh, we're fooling ourselves, right? So uh, he goes on, he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. Okay, brother and sister in Christ is what the context is referring to there. And so the person who says, I'm a Christian, but hates his brother or sister in Christ is still in the darkness, okay? Not following God. He calls us to love each other, right? They will know we are Christians by our love for one another. You know that song, they will know we are Christians? That's a, a, an incorrect theological song. Because it's not true. The Bible does not say they will know we are Christians by our love. The Bible says they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. That's what it says, okay? Meaning you got to love each other, okay? In fact, as you mature, you'll say, I get to love my brothers and sisters. It's a delight, all right? Well, at any rate, I get sidetracked. We must follow each step of the way. Okay, so first, verse 8, faith trusts in God's guidance. Then we see in verse 9, faith endures hardship 
while following God's guidance. Look at what he says here, okay? Um, By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as does Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. If you study Genesis, you realize he called Abraham, but then he also called Isaac his son, and then Isaac, uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac, he called him, and then his 12 sons. That became the nation of Israel. But here they have this promise, this incredible promise. We're going to give you the land. We're going to make you a blessing to all nations, all this stuff. And But yet we see that all of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, but they're living as foreigners in the land that was promised to them. And they're living in tents. And he's making that, he's saying it like that because he's making a statement. He is a foreigner in the land that was promised to him, and it mentions how they lived in tents while there, emphasizing the nomadic lifestyle rather than a settled They hadn't found their ultimate home yet. The next verse actually talks about that. Abraham saw past that. And so this was a difficulty. Faith endures hardship while following God's guidance. God actually calls us to patient endurance. He doesn't say, say this little prayer and your whole life will be fantastic from now on. And no problems ever again. If you send me $500. I'm just kidding. Okay. (laughs) Stop that, Larry. Okay. Faith endures hardship while following God's guidance. God calls for patient endurance. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. This is an incredible promise, very, very important point that he brings out. Galatians 6, verse 9. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. He's calling us not to a little uh, sprint, but a marathon race called Christianity. And he says, don't get tired of doing the right thing, of following God even when it hurts. We will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. And so he's calling us here to patient endurance. Something uh, John MacArthur said, he said, true faith is deaf to doubt, dumb to discouragement, and blind to impossibility. I like that. Almost, that'd that'd make a good plaque, wouldn't it? Okay. Life is often hard. Let me tell you the story of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans back in the 18th century. And it was a hard struggle for him. But he just poured his life into ministering and loving these people. To the point where he got, I think it was tuberculosis, okay? And then 
he eventually even died from this, right? Well, he gets this, but he keeps on pouring into them. And then eventually, Jonathan Edwards, if you've heard of him, he takes him into his home to take care of him because he was dying, right? His daughter actually took care of him. She gets tuberculosis as well and ends up dying as well. But he, So it's tragedy, right? And he died at age 29. And you're thinking, 29, he, he, he could have lived such a longer life and done so much more work for the Lord and all that. And we have all those kinds of questions and so forth. But life is tough. Now, what's fascinating about his story is he wrote a diary of his missionary work. And Jonathan Edwards, after he died, actually published his diary. Uh, so it's the diary of David Brainerd, if you ever want to look at it. You can still buy it to this day. It was a major bestseller. It has been used throughout up to, up to now to help train missionaries. Uh, so his life wasn't for nothing. But he didn't care. If you read his diary, you'd realize, I'm just living for Jesus. You know, I'm going to follow him no matter what. Who cares? I'm following him, and I know that someday there's a place, a city. We'll get to that verse in just a moment. And that's what led him and, and, and brought him. So life is often hard, but God calls for patient endurance and also, God's timing is often not the same as ours. Abraham recognized this. He was promised the land and he never got it, right? His people ended up getting it, but he got the thing he was promised eventually, and we'll get there in just a moment. So God's timing is often not the same as ours. We have some friends who they were felt led to be missionaries in Africa. And they, this was before we met them, okay? They sold everything. And, I mean, everything. Sold their house, everything else, took off, used that money to go to Africa. I think it was within two to three months, it just was a miserable failure. They had to come home. So they lost everything. And they did nothing happen. And and I don't know, you know, no, I can't, not being in their situation, I can't say, well, this is what you should have done or whatever. But sometimes when we sense something, it might not be the same timing as we sense because perhaps they should have received um, training. <laughs> you know, okay, if I'm feeling called to such and such, I better get some training and then do this and that. You know, it, you know wait on God's timing as opposed to, I'm going to jump because I need to do it. Did they get advice from their pastor and their mature friends? I don't know, okay? I just know they're wonderful people, love the Lord. But, you know, whatever happened there, I do know that kind of thing happens. We need to recognize this truth. God's timing is often not the same as ours. And so faith endures hardship while following God's guidance And then finally, verse 10, faith looks to the final resting place of God's guidance. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Tents don't have foundations. 
got little tarps maybe to keep the rain away, but they don't have foundations, right? He's looking to the foundation. Foundations imply permanence. Abraham looked for the city to come. Eternity is what really matters. This world, and we're going to see this as we go through Hebrews 11 more, this world is not our home. If we live as if it is, we are going to experience uh, disappointment. This world is not our home. Let me read uh, something again from Albert Moeller. He says, there are two important points in this passage. First, the city that God builds is an eternal city. The city that God builds will not be like the cities of Mesopotamia, Egypt, or even ancient Rome, which once called itself the eternal city. These places have come and gone. They have been sacked, marauded, plundered, and pillaged. All that now remains of them are ruins. But the city that God is building is truly the eternal city. It is entirely secure, unshakable, and cannot be destroyed. By tracing the theme of city through Scripture, we find that this promised city is the new Jerusalem described in Revelation chapter 21. And so we see here this world is not our home. We all long for this security. Okay? In fact, human beings have two major needs, that of uh, significance and security. But both of those needs can only be truly met in Christ, in a relationship with him. Your significance will be shattered by the world. And people will try to rob you of it and make you feel like you are insignificant and don't have a purpose. But God says he loves you and has designed you specifically and especially for a purpose. And so you have that significance, but you also have that security. If you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from his love. <laughs> absolute security. So this world is not our home. If your security is in this world, look out. Our future home is built by God. That's how it ends, right? Whose architect and builder is God. Look at John chapter 14, 1 through 3. Here, Jesus is talking And in John 14, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. That's a good one. Believe in God. Here's real faith. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has gone to prepare the place for us. He's the architect. He's the builder. And he's going to do a really good job. Okay? He's, look at Revelation. This is the picture. This is the ultimate house, the ultimate uh, place, so to speak, the foundations that God is making. Look at Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 4. It's the last book. He 
says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's the city that Abraham saw in the future, that he looked forward to, a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. It's heaven. I want to read something from C.S. Lewis. He's writing about heaven. And this is just kind of interesting. I don't, you know, it's just a, a way. I like to ponder what it's going to be like in heaven. Do you ever do that? Okay, well, this is his pondering, okay? He says, he's quoting a passage in Revelation, to him that overcomes I will give a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him that receives it. What can be more a man's own than this new name, which even in eternity remains a secret between God and him? And what shall we take this secrecy to mean? Surely that each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why else were individuals created but that God, loving all infinitely, should love each differently? And this difference, so far from impairing, floods with meaning the love of all blessed creatures for one another, the communion of the saints. If all experienced God in the same way and returned him an identical worship, the song of the church triumphant would have no symphony. It would be like an orchestra in which all the instruments played the same note. Aristotle has told us that a city is a unity of unlikes. And St. Paul, that a body is a unity of different members. Heaven is a city and a body because the blessed remain eternally different. It is a society because each has something to tell all the others. Fresh and ever fresh news of my God, whom each finds in him whom all praises as our God. That's kind of interesting, huh? Nice thought there. Our future home is built by God. But I want you to turn to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, okay? Because it's not just looking to the future. There's a balance here that is healthy to maintain of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So if you're in him, if you've been born again, you've become a Christian, when you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now that word down payment is erebon, Okay, The Holy Spirit is a down payment. You have to understand what this is saying. Okay, 
We all know what a down payment is, right? When you borrow some money, you put a down payment on it. Maybe you're borrowing money to buy a house. So you put a down payment, right? The bank receives your down payment. It receives a little bit of the full amount it's going to get later, right? The Holy Spirit is the down payment to you. It's a little bit of the whole amount that you're going to get later. Got it? So when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're not just getting a promise of what's to come. We're experiencing a little bit of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. So the Holy Spirit is when we have those wonderful tastes of his goodness and glimpses of his glory. Sometimes they just overwhelm us with just, wow, God, you are awesome, incredible, okay? That Holy Spirit, that's the one I'm talking about, okay? The Holy Spirit, we actually get to experience a little bit of heaven now. That's what a down payment is. And that is well enough to say, I don't need the world anymore because God is far better, even just this little down payment. And guess what it's going to be like when he comes back? I can't even think about it. Can't even imagine it. Okay, you get the point? So our future home is built by God. We have that promise, but we get a little taste of it even now by the Holy Spirit. Let me finish here with one last note from Moeller. Let's be candid. If you do not have any assurance of joy in the life to come, then it makes sense to pursue all the pleasure you can in this life. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. As Christians, however, we cannot place our ultimate satisfaction and hope in the promises and pleasures that this world has to offer. We must live by faith, recognizing that one day we will experience a joy that is greater than any joy we can know here in this life. The joys of this world are fleeting and passing, but the joys of heaven are eternal, abundant, and never fading. If we live for those joys, we will set our affections on eternity, live meaningful lives for Christ, and endure sufferings in his name as we look for the joy that awaits us in God's heavenly city. In that city, we put our hope. Let's pray. Father, we want to grow in faith. You have drawn us to yourself. We have placed our faith in you. We believe, but we want to grow in this faith. And we see here from Abraham that faith trusts in your guidance. And we want you to lead us away from sin and into your plan that you have for us. We're willing to patiently endure whatever we have to. We know that you will see us through and give us the strength to endure. And that we have this ultimate hope at the end because we believe. Increase our faith. We ask that you would give us those tastes of your goodness, those glimpses of your glory. We would even see the sick healed those who are in bondage truly set free. 
lives change forever. Use us to bring these kinds of things about, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our great God.